0: Season 2 of the Casting Light Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Mack. Here at the Casting Light Podcast, we talk about lighting, the people that do it, and how they do what they do. You can find us on the web at castinglightpodcast.com, on Twitter at Podcasting Light, and on Facebook at Casting Light Podcast. This time on the Casting Light Podcast, we have Steve Lieberman of SJ Lighting. He's a lighting designer with over 25 years' experience doing electronic dance music events, nightclubs, etc. Welcome, Steve.
1: Thank you for having me. It's my honor and pleasure to be a part of this.
0: Now, I want to let you know that you were the first guest that was specifically requested by listeners.
1: That's fantastic, and, uh, and I'm very flattered to be requested. My mom obviously got through.
0: So, how goes the home renovation project?
1: Uh, six months later, uh, I still don't have a kitchen, but hopefully, uh, you know, I'm taking off for, for South Africa on Sunday to go, uh, we have, uh, ultra music festival in Johannesburg and Cape town. So I'm hoping on my return that maybe when I come back, there'll be the joy of looking at appliances or something, you know, where I could actually enter this region of my house and use it. You, you don't realize what you've got until it's gone. Right. That old cliche. Well, we have a makeshift kitchen in our garage, so I'm over it. But thank you for asking.
0: Oh, you're you're welcome. Tell uh, so Ultra Music Festival. Tell me a little, little bit about your current place in the business and the place of your company in the business.
1: Well, we like to think of ourselves as you know, kind of like a multidisciplined uh, firm that specializes in electronic dance music so you know as far as the industry is concerned you know we kind of touch on on a few different aspects um, of lighting and production design uh, music festival stage design with its core in electronic dance music and then we also we uh we've been blessed with being hired to design and develop uh, many nightclubs uh throughout the united states and uh and a few international properties so for the most part, to, to kind of sum it up, it's nightclubs, festivals. We okay. call them festivals now. You know, 20 years ago, we called them raves.
0: All right. So I, I know you're from New York. How did you end up in the
1: industry and out in California? Well, at the age of 15 years old, I grew up on Long Island. On the At the age of 15 years old, I would go out to the Hamptons, and a, a friend of mine, his his uncle owned a club in Hampton Bay is called La Plage, and, uh, and he got me a job there. And me and my two buddies – we were barbacks at La Plage Nightclub in 1987, 88, and 89. And from that very first day of working in that nightclub, it just, it was, it was fascinating to me. And I, and I just knew somewhere deep down that I wanted to be a part of that entertainment, hospitality, nightclub environment. And it just, you know, I quote unquote, got bit by the bug at a very early age. And then growing up, you know, in, uh I grew up in the five towns, which if you're from New York or Long Island and you know where that is, it's relatively close to the city, you know, 15, 20 miles from the city. And depending on traffic, you get there pretty quick. And uh, and we would do uh, weekend adventures into Manhattan and uh, get into the clubs that we could weasel our way into and uh, started that way. And then uh, around 1990, when I was graduating high school, that's kind of when the electronic dance music Wave came into came into the United States, and and the whole rave culture really caught on, and it was very much a subculture back then. But you know, I I connected with some people early on during those years, and uh, and was exposed to uh, the production and technology side of the business, and that's where it took my passion for being involved in nightclubs at you know at that early age, and gave it a little bit more direction and purpose.
0: I see. We know we've had a lot of people from theater and TV and live music and events on the show and and as well as combination of all four of those. What are the things that make EDM events, DJ events, Rave style events different? What makes them singular?
1: Well, you know, when we first started doing it, one of the things that I noticed very early on was that we break the rules. So where when you go to school and you get a degree in lighting design, and even now at this point in time in my career where I have a design firm and actually my, you know, my two employees, they both have lighting design degrees. You know, you guys are applying the science and the trade of lighting design that you learned in school on how to balance your fixtures and focuses and, and things like that. Where we come into a rave, all we're trying to do is create eye candy and dynamic, you know, kinetic energy with the light show. And we're not we're not really doing any theatrical rules. So right off the bat, I kind of felt like. You know, we made a right turn when everybody else was going straight. And doing lights for electronic dance music, it was just exciting. First of all, I'm a big electronic music fan, and I always have been since since 1987 working in the clubs and even up until today. So the ability to, to match that technology and production with the music, with the crowd and the environment where it's a more interactive experience, I think that's one of the major... Excuse me. One of the major differences in this discipline, as opposed to doing a television show or theatrical show, which are all you know beautiful ways of expressing yourself and you know with the art and blend of science. But when you do it in a live event, in an event where the crowd is dancing and it might be twelve hours and the music is intense, that level of intensity translates into the level of your show with the production, and that's always what I thought kind of defined this area as laterally shifted away from the rest of the lighting design community.
0: I see. Tell me a little bit about that interactivity. What are what are the things that you can do to keep up with the music, keep up with the crowd? How do you structure things so that way you can do that?
1: Well, you know, I was having this conversation actually today with a friend of mine uh driving to a meeting. You know, it's it comes from the heart honestly, it, obviously you, you have to have an understanding of the technology. You have to have an understanding of the console and how you're, how you want to get the look from your head through the desk out to the lights, but you need to do it in an instant. It's not a scripted env- environment. Whereas, you know, if you're writing a cue stack for a special event, whether it's you know a theater or a TV show or a corporate or an industrial, in a live event where you have no idea what this DJ is going to play next, that there's a there's a, a structure and a format to laying out your desk to be able to get to things instantly. And it's understanding the music and being able to predict the music, which is going to, it's going to enhance your show and really keep you on your game. And the only way to really do that is to really just love it and want to be there. You know, this is not where, you know, you go, well, I guess I'll take the gig, but I don't really like it, you know, but I, you know, it's a gig this weekend. That's not why you do this particular side of the business. You get over here because you have a passion for it. And in, in order to stand in front of the desk, you need to have all the skills and the passion in order to really put forth a great environment and a great show.
0: What is your hook into, these, into this work and into these designs? Where do you find the inspiration for however you're going to lay the rig out and then however you're going? Because, I mean, I know you said you, said you have to structure things so you can get to things in an instant. How do you decide what you're going to be able to do ahead of time?
1: Well, that, that was kind of a twofold question. I mean, the first part of your question, you said, how do you design for the look? And then how do you design the look? So that, that's kind of two elements. As a stage and lighting designer, you know, the first part is how do you design the rig to give you the versatility you need and have a unique look to it for that particular show? And then the second part of that question is how do you do the looks once the, the stage is it? Let's say you come in as a guest LD. So there's obviously, you know, it's two different environments. So to answer the first part of the question, um, the inspiration and the design concepts. To be honest, I look everywhere, no matter where I am. I'm a very observant, obsessive, compulsive, neurotic personality type person. So, you know, and I've said this in other interviews, even conversations with my friends or my wife, you know, there's times like walking through Rome with my wife. I remember I just went on this binge of taking pictures of door knockers and doors of of ancient buildings and then walking through New York, uh, taking pictures of manhole covers and, and anything that, you know, where the geometry or the shape inspires me. You know, I also, you know, I love design magazines, you know, for, you know, one magazine, for instance, that I love getting every month is a European magazine called wallpaper. And I love it. I mean, I'll just rip a page out of it. I'll take a picture and I'll send it to the guys in the office and go, check this out. We need to do something with this shape, you know, for this stage, but let's modify it. Great architects, the the John Lautners of the world. And, you know, uh the frank gearies of the world like their stuff is is truly inspiring to me so i i i take in anything that i can get anywhere so any shape geometry philosophy um you can't just find inspiration by just staring at a blank piece of paper and trying to just sketch it i always start with with something else some sort of inspirational image you know for instance uh we just you know we did a design for for ultra music festival coming up in miami And uh, I can't give away what the design is, but one of the original inspirations was I was actually looking at pictures that Star Wars had just come out. You know, the latest and greatest. And I just happened to be Googling some Star Wars images because I was just, you know, kind of scouring the Internet just because I didn't feel like answering emails at the moment. And uh, and there was this great picture of one of their like Starfleet uh, like a landing bay and some, some of the windows into space. And some of the shapes of the windows were just really, they were just really amazing the way, the way these scenic designers laid it out. So I grabbed that picture, you know, ripped it off the internet, sent it to the guys. I go kind of put this in the inspiration folder for ultra. So just things like that is, is where we're going to go to get that, you know, a lot of the stages it's, it's geometric shape. So when you, when you go to school and you go and you, you ask your parents, you know, I'm never going to need to use geometry in, in your real life. Well, I do. So study hard in math and you know, hopefully it will help you in your career. So, but that's, that's a lot of what I do for inspiration it, just in my personal everyday life. You know, just, just be an observant human being. Be, be observant. Pay attention. Pay attention to the details.
0: Now, how do you match that with the individual event or how do you match that to an individual DJ?
1: Well, most festivals don't have an individual DJ. They might have a, one stage for one for one night of a show, could have 10, 12 DJs on it. So you want to kind of match it for a style. That makes sense. You know, in the electronic dance music world, you know, you're, you could have styles from drum and bass, trap, deep house, trance. You know, there's all these different genres. And believe it or not, they actually do have little nuances. So... And there's cultural things about them that you need to understand as well. Like the drum and bass and trap kids, you know, they're a little more hardcore. You know, they jump up and down a little bit more intensely. And the way they listen to their music is and they're dedicated. These are not the main stage kids. And then you go to main stage, you know, that's a completely different environment. That could be the people that maybe this might be their first festival. All the first festival time goers, chances are the higher percentage of them, they'll be at the main stage. So the way you approach those designs is a little bit different. Um, So a more underground stage, it could be a little bit darker, a little more deviant kind of looks, a little more aggressive. Uh, And a a main stage might be a little more ethereal, softer, theatrical with a balance of that aggressive look. But at the end of the day, all of electronic dance music, when you're doing one of these shows – For me personally, I've always liked the sharp, aggressive edge of a show. You know, when when that drop is going to come, when that beat is going to hit, when there's a moment that you know there's going to be some sort of high-intensity energy coming from the speakers, I'm going to match that with whatever the visual effects are going to be, and I'm going to try to melt your eyes out of your head. Just for a brief minute, and then I'll give you a chance to catch your breath.
0: So there's been dance lighting since the days of Jules Fisher and Paul Morantz at, at Studio 54.
1: Amazing designers.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Forgetting the march of technological progress, how have design goals for this kind of work changed since then?
1: I would say that's some of the most inspirational designs that I've seen to date. Uh, uh, some of those early, early concepts and, and projects that were built with, with limited resources. I actually always forget technological progress. And, you know, I'm sure you as a designer as well, you know, we always get asked, what's the latest and greatest? What's the new technology that's changing everything? And my answer is always the same, right? It's, it, technology to me is really a secondary function of what design is. Where it's all about application and execution of design. Whether I'm using spots and mirror balls, or I'm using techno beams and intella beams and an LCD controller, or I'm using the latest and greatest Ayrton, Magic Blades, Cosmopix, or anything else, the latest and greatest has is is irrelevant. Well, irrelevant's not the right word. It is. It makes us more efficient as designers. So the ability to have a fixture that does what fixtures of yesteryear did for a fraction of the price, a fraction of the energy consumption and easier to handle. Of course, that makes our lives easier, but you would never walk down the street and look at some beautiful piece of architecture or art on the street or a sculpture and say, wow, that's amazing. What saw did you use to cut that wood or, you know, what did did you have an impact hammer when you were breaking up the concrete to plant that, that structure down? Like how deep is, how big is the footing for that bridge? You know, you don't people don't say that, you know, that's so when you put it in, in kind of that context, you go, oh, well, that that makes sense. You, you don't walk up to a beautiful design and go, I'd really love to see your box of paints to see how you did this. Nobody does that. When you walk into a museum, you look at it, and you appreciate what the art is, the end result. You might appreciate the, the path to get to it, but people aren't examining like, wow, you must have had a five hundred dollar brush to put that paint on that canvas. It doesn't work that way. Now, it means a lot to us when we're talking to other people in the trade on, hey, you know, what tools should I buy? What tools should I use? Like, what software do you use? Because I'm trying to become more efficient as an artist, as a designer, as an engineer, you know, and you have to be all three of them. I said all three of those things because all three of those things are critical to be in our trade. So how have things changed? Well, they've gotten bigger um, because of the availability of items, right? And because of technology and the internet and electronics and just the world is a smaller place. Uh, you can get things faster you know I, I mean you know, I'm 43 years old. I remember growing up you know we didn't have Google to find out information in three and a half milliseconds. We had to go to our Encyclopedia Britannica. And look it up and hope that the information was published in there two years prior when they actually made that set of $2,000 books, you know, and, uh, yeah. and now all of this thing is at your fingertips. So as great as that is, it's all, it makes things come faster. You know, you have to make faster decisions, more decisions, quicker decisions to just kind of put this together. So I, I don't know that the philosophy has changed. I think the scale of things have changed. The toolbox has gotten bigger. The scale has gotten
0: bigger. I think scale is a good point, actually, because you know, from from what I've seen, uh, the festivals just keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger to the point where you're creating an environment across acres now, rather than a few hundred square feet.
1: Right. Well, at the same time, I mean, that's also goes back to basic laws of economics: it's supply and demand. Whereas a show, you know, when I started doing these events, you know, there might be fifteen hundred people in an event. Now. There's 150,000 a day for three days in a row. So, just by the nature of what it is, we have 180 artists performing across three days. The the show's tremendous. 15 years ago, we were spending maybe $200,000 total to produce seven stages production wise. Now, I spend you know on some of my stages I have three million dollars for one stage I got 1.2 on another stage I got eight hundred thousand dollars on another stage so my production budget is could be six million dollars for one show it's it's it, the, that has changed so that's the, the scale of it you know the philosophy hasn't changed the scale has changed so the amount of work we need to do to get to the to the finish line has increased you know it's think of it as a pyramid the base is just getting bigger and the tip is just now getting higher but it's still yeah. it's still a pyramid you know, but the, <laughs> it just it just keeps growing, though, exponentially. It's been an amazing experience just to be an observer who is observing from the inside.
0: Tell me about that, because your career and this sort of part of the business came up at the same time you know, tell me about that.
1: Tell me about your experience of that. You know, I, I, I always laugh. And, you know, sometimes as I get older, I feel I, I hear myself turning into my father. And I like repeat the same things over and over. I tell the same jokes, I tell the same stories. But I've always said my career has been me capitalizing on bad decisions. And, uh, and I say <laughs> and I say that tongue in cheek. But, um, you know, 20 years ago, you know, 20 plus years ago, doing lights for nightclubs and doing production for nightclubs and being involved in the raves was really frowned upon and it was looked down upon, especially in other people in our trade, in, in the lighting design. I wasn't really considered anything. It was like, why do you deal with nightclubs and raves? It was like, that's the lowest, that's, that's the lowest common denominator right there to even be involved. We don't even want to talk to you. You know, we do rock and roll, theater, television. Like who, who are you kid? Get out of here.
0: Although to be fair, even twenty years ago, something was happening that was clear. I mean, between the tunnel and limelight, I mean, they were very singular. They were unusual in the amount of money they wanted to put into their lighting systems, but something was happening. Something was
1: definitely happening, but it wasn't. You know, for the for those that were that had success in this industry, you know, outside of Jules and Paul and the other Paul, nobody else really took interest in us. All the rock and roll guys, I mean. they didn't even want to hear about it. Like, what is this? You know, the music was considered noise and nobody wanted it. And plus, to be honest with you, nightclub owners and rave promoters were not really the most up-and-up stand-up businessmen back then either. You know, they was, they didn't have a great reputation and it wasn't just because, you know, it was some myth. It was accurate. These guys were not great at paying their bills and business was maybe a little bit shadier than it was. I mean, I do remember doing you know, doing raves or underground events where, I mean, we broke into warehouses and and we cracked open electrical panels and we shoved wires in there to just pull the power out of there and get what we needed to get and do the party until the cops came. And that, I mean, that's what it was back then. I mean, I, we didn't do that for 10 years, but there was solid three or four years of doing it because that was the only way to get it done. And then eventually, you know, as the subculture started coming closer to the surface it legitimized at the same pace. So I would say those two things, the, the legitimacy and the rise from subculture to mainstream is directly proportional. And that's also the same as the legitimacy of my own personal career was directly proportional to this industry going from subculture to mainstream. As it became more mainstream, all of a sudden, these bad decisions of doing raves, all of a sudden people were looking at me going, oh, Lieberman's Doing big shows. What the hell is that about? Well, buddy, I was doing these same show for the same promoter when it was 5,000 people, and you told me that I was a fool. Now it happens to be 50,000 people, and the promoter is one of my good friends for the past 15 years, and we're still doing it. So I didn't just step in this pile of whatever. I was here at the beginning because I wanted to be here and it wasn't about the money. It was about, I love the music. I love the community. It's just, it's just something that's always been a part of me, something I really enjoyed doing. So that's the, the bad decision being capitalized on because it obviously, you know, you recognize it obviously from, from the early Peter Gation nightclub era, you know, and it, as its popularity grew I just happened to be there because I wanted to be there, but I can assure you I did not make any money doing it back then.
0: Speaking of which, uh, you know, uh, and it was sort of speaking of promoters and the, and the folks that run these things, who are your actual clients and how do you interact
1: with them? Well, I have a lot of clients that we have all kind of come up through the industry together. So, two of the ones that your your listeners will probably know the most would be Ultra Music Festival and Insomniac. So, But I've been doing Ultra since 2000. So this is my 17th year with Ultra. And I've been with Insomniac since 2001. So it's my 16th year with Insomniac. And at this point in time, it's we're all family. There's a there's a trust factor there. We've been working together for a long time. Now I'm not the only person who does any production design for them, but I'm kind of I've been around the longest. I'm I have the closest relationship with these guys, and I've been leading their production design environments since the beginning. And so a lot of my relationships with with my nightclub clients or with my festival clients, uh, it goes back years. And the ones that are new are based on relationships that I have, they're friends of friends who are part of the, in you know part of you know the nightclub community a part of the festival community. So a lot of it really comes around I mean we don't like uh, how do you advertise for something like this? It's just really just word of mouth and just being part of the community. So that's kind of my relationship with the clients. It's some are more friendly, some are more business but at the end of the day we're, we all kind of roll in the same circles. So that's you know it's social as well. And that's part of being in this part of the industry where it's, it is, you know, building nightclubs, that's a social environment. Uh, Doing festivals, that's a social environment and a huge live music environment. But again, it's all, these are all social events. You know, it's not the same as, as sitting with a headset on doing a television show where you're in a booth the whole time and you don't really interact with, you know, people who are seated in the audience. You know, this is mayhem half the time and it's absolute high energy, kinetic energy. People are just, people are jumping up and down and they're they're going crazy. So that by itself just makes it a little bit more intense. It's a very, it's a party atmosphere. It's a social atmosphere. And that kind of falls back into the whole business aspect of what we do as well. So it's that whole social environment with your, with your clients that's helped me develop the business as well. And I don't do it necessarily to develop the business they're truly my friends like some of my closest friends on the planet they are club owners or producers and that's just because we spend a lot of time together we do shows together and we also socialize they've been to my house they know my wife they know my children i know theirs and we'll travel together or we'll have dinner together and that's you know this commonality there so i think that's the same for for any industry
0: when you're talking to a new client or a new uh promoter A new producer. Yeah. How do you communicate uh, design concepts with them? Like, what do you talk about? Is it buzzwords? Is it renderings? Is it like think Blade Runner? What are those conversations like when when you're starting out a relationship? Well,
1: I mean, it's always good. You know, that's one of the hardest things as a designer is how do you articulate your designs in words and how do you illustrate your designs on paper and that, because not every client, not every person can truly look at a CAD drawing and understand what they're looking at. Some people just don't get that. So you need to be able to speak about it intelligently. You need to be able to illustrate your your concepts and your ideas on paper. So how do you do that? Well, as far as speaking, that's a skill. You, you need to know how to talk to your clients. Uh, if you have some inspirational images or concepts, you know, I've, I've done lots of clubs where I've used, you know, the, the buzzword Tron, you know, you know, a couple of years ago we did a couple like with a lot of like LED edge lighting on the architecture that chases and things like that. So when I was describing it to the client, I said, no, imagine the movie Tron with all the edge lit and things like that. And they got that right away. And there's other times where like I did a design for Electric Daisy Carnival last year. You know, I showed them these images of like uh, like the old Jetson's cartoons of the floating houses in the, in the sky and in space and their little spaceship cars and things like that. And I use that to illustrate sort of some of the concepts that I was trying to get through and the philosophies I was trying to get through. And so you need to be able to have more tools in your toolbox when you're selling or explaining or detailing your design concepts and ideas, because having it in your head and getting it out so that other people understand what you're doing and having them truly understand and feel some sort of emotion the same way that you feel about it is, is difficult. So it, I'm still learning how to do it. You know, you've heard the cliche of you got to earn your stripes or I've served my time already. You know, one of the things that I've always believed at the very beginning of my career is that honestly, you're never done serving your time. You're never done earning your stripes. You're always learning something. There's always something more that you could learn. You could be a 90 year old man doing this forever. And I can assure you, you don't know everything. It's just impossible. And actually, you know, the, the older you get and the more you learn, the more you realize how much more there is to learn. That's fair. You know, I think as you get older, the more the more there is. Like the, the world gets bigger as you get older. And you go, oh my God, there's so much more.
0: Can we look a little more specifically at some of the events you've done? Sure. What are some of your favorite EDM style events that you have done?
1: Well, uh, again, let, let's talk about the ones that people will recognize. So Carl Cox and friends is one of my favorites and it really holds a very dear place in my heart. And that's at ultra music festival every year. And it has been at ultra now. I want to say going on, uh, like 12, or 12 years or so we've been doing that, that environment at Carl Cox. And for years I played with this geometry of, it was a hexagon, but for me it wasn't a hexagon. It was a beehive.
0: I see.
1: So I, me, internally, I always called it amongst me and anybody who was working on the stage with me, I always called it the beehive. And there were years where I built the big beehive and then I deconstructed the beehive and then I reconstructed the beehive and then I put video in the beehive. And I've always come back to that and I just always loved it because for me, like people look at, oh, you got the hexagon. Ah, nah, it's not a hexagon. It's a beehive. Mm-hmm. It was, it's geometry found in nature and it was something, it was like this beautiful blend of those two things to me. It was the organic side of design mixed with with hard geometry, recognizable monolithic, you know, features. And to me, that kind of all blended together to get that end result. And for me, I, I took that, my ultimate goal for that environment was to try to create something that would be almost iconic for that environment. I don't want you to see the same thing, but I want it to feel familiar but only like I know there's something familiar about this, but I'm not sure what it is. Okay. And that's kind of the element that I tried to create. Again, like we had the beehive version one, version two, version three. And, and even this year, it's not a beehive, but there's inspiration that kind of, you know, sometimes, you know, and I've, and I've told people this before. Sometimes I bury little Easter eggs you know, which is like a programmer's term. Obviously, I'm sure everybody who listens knows what an Easter egg is. Um, I, I I put little Easter eggs into my designs that you couldn't tell what it is. It, it might be a dimension of certain of something. It could be 13 feet on a piece of truss, which for me meant something that day. Or it could be some special shape, or it's just something that kind of makes me smile when I look at it, but the audience is never going to figure it out. And there's those kinds of things that I also like to kind of be whimsical about the designs as well.
0: It sounds like you're using almost like leitmotifs to create something that is familiar, that you can keep coming back to, and yet you can keep changing and expanding upon uh, as you keep doing the event every year.
1: I mean, for me, that's it's a fantastic goal. If I can ever truly reach that and I feel 100% satisfied – that I've made it there. But as a designer, um, I am my own worst critic as well. So there's always something at the end of a show that I'm going to look back on and go, well, I could have done that a little bit better. I could have made that a little bit tighter. You know, I would have done that differently. I would have hung that at a different trim angle. I wish I knew, I wish I did, you know, but at the end, you know, we got some good pictures and it was a good show. So I'm always going to, you know, kick myself in the rear end about something in a design. And again, that's part of, for me, that's part of the growing process as well. I'm always looking for improvement. How can we improve? I just always want to make it, there's always something that I could add that could just give it that extra little special edge. I wish I had an extra day of programming, you know, anything Yeah. to, to dial this thing in a little bit tighter.
0: So let's talk about the schedule and the sort of the more nuts and bolts of this. First project like that, you know, when are designs due? How far out is that? How long does the sort of engineering process take? And then like load in and programming and et cetera, et cetera.
1: Honestly, we start thinking about that show even before, you know, I'm thinking about 2017 already and we haven't even loaded in 2016. So we're thinking it's on our mind always the next one. It's always the next one, the next one, the next one but we work and are actually developing documentation for a show like Ultra Music Festival easily 9 months in advance. Okay. At the 6 month point, we're getting yelled at already if we don't have documentation ready to go, and by 3 months out, everything's in the can for the most part. Now, there are things that have to, you know, that we might be modifying lighting design elements, but we're not changing philosophies, geometries, and the major components of what the system is. You know, it's going to be the nuances of what the design is at that point in time. So at this point, like Ultra, you know, we start loading in Ultra in two and a half weeks. It loads in over the course of about a month. We already have show files in our office now for for, upcoming, for these upcoming events um, in 3D, in our programming suite. And we start touching these show files Probably about three weeks out. I wouldn't say we, you know, we're putting ten-hour days into a show file, but we're touching it, making sure patches are right and things like that. And then there's there's three or four days of programming that goes into a show just to kind of focus it and make it perfect. And you know, as a as a programmer and a designer as well, that your focus positions are everything. So we, I try not to rush that. I mean, we we get it done as quickly as we can. But at the end of the day, the only legacy we have after the show is ripped out or photos. So if one fixture is off by five degrees, that's the one fixture everybody's going to notice. So we spend a lot of time just really doing, giving our best effort to make sure that the rig is focused properly. And to, for me, that's everything. And then there's the coordination of, of all the other bits and pieces that go into it, you know, because to get a show built, there's the design team. Then and they have to produce the documentation. Then you have the producer who needs to approve it. Then you have the vendor who needs to put it in place for the right budget. So right there you have this um, this triangle, triangular relationship between vendor, producer, designer. And there's always – it's a struggle. And eventually you have to end up with this equilateral triangle because everybody needs to fit their piece in right. It can't be skewed. Otherwise, you know, there's going to be a struggle. If there's not enough money to do it, well – that line just got shortened up. You need to stretch that point out or decrease the equipment to increase the amount of finances you have or vice versa. So there's that dynamic. So until you get that in balance, once that's in balance, then it gets loaded into a truck. You bring it to the site. You know, we have a month to assemble it, but that's fence line goes in three weeks out, semi trucks show up and start building structure. These are outdoor shows in South, you know, this is an outdoor show in South Florida. It's not if it's going to rain, it's when it's going to rain. I've never done an ultra in Miami where it hasn't rained on one day for us. Whether it's load in, show day, load out, it's going to rain. It's just what day is it going to rain on us? You know, you hope it's just not going to be three days of rain during the show. And I've had that too. And you deal with it, but you do your best to get ahead of the curve so that when Mother Nature decides to slow you down, that you have a little bit of breathing room so you have that element you have you know getting the structure in then your lighting team comes in then your video team comes in then the artists come you know once the artists show up that's a whole other element you have to deal with backline and and uh, riders from different artists and their requirements and guest lds previs suites you know the human resources element of hey i've got 50 guys working for me getting this thing built and you know we're a small army Putting these things together. So there's a lot. I mean, it's nine months of work on one show. So you can imagine, like even in my office, we probably do 40 festivals a year. So just imagine trying to manage on average two to three stages per 40 festivals. You know, I mean, we we probably design and build 70 stages a year. So trying to manage the personnel and documentation and coordination of each one of these, you know, you have to be focused to get this thing done, so it's there's a lot. It's again, it's going back to the beginning of our conversation this evening. It's this whole juggling of different elements and components to keep everything in play and to keep everything balanced throughout this whole procedure to get to the end to get to the end result. Because at the end of the day, the kids that show up to this show, they don't truly understand that we've been working on this for nine months to give them three days of good times, and then we rip it down and pack it up and take it on to the next city it's more than just knowing the equipment. It's knowing all of the bits and pieces of putting this together and that includes the human resources and that's why it's called resources. You have commodity resources, you have production resources and you have human resources and all of it takes all of these things mixed together in the proper amounts to get these places built and knowing how to balance those things is critical and that's something like with my company, what we do is we try to help in the balance and so of course obviously we do the design work and we deliver the documentation but we're also assisting in balancing vendors timing truck schedules getting the guys in place programming schedules console software you know anything you could think of that's related to the show is relevant for example you know one of the guys in the office he was doing some modeling and we were piping some fixtures off of a truss but instead of drawing a pipe he drew it as a square, like a as square tube. I said, why are you using square tube? He goes, well, when we render, it just doesn't make as many lines and this and that. I said, I understand. I said, and that's cool. Make sure you put a note. I said, otherwise we're going to have a vendor. We're going to have a vendor looking for 240 pieces of three foot long square tube. I said, because that's what you have put on the drawing. So there's the understanding also. If you put it on a piece of paper, it's going to end up in the field and you have nobody to blame but yourself. If you draw something with two lights kind of crashing into each other, you're not sure how to hang it. How can you expect a stagehand to hang it? Yeah. If a decision needs to be made in the field and it's not going to be made by the designer, the the path that's going to be taken is going to be the easiest path, not the correct one necessarily. And easiest and correct will be mutually exclusive.
0: So then on the projection side, how do you integrate that into, into your designs at both a design level and at a playback
1: level? Well, integration is probably the critical adjective in that question. So I don't think of video, lighting, structure as three separate elements. I think of them as integrated pieces of design work. You know, when we're doing a a festival, I know right off the bat that the way these DJs identify themselves is through video. At the end of the day, these guys are standing behind decks. And if you don't know what they look like or you're 700 feet back, you can't see the guy. So the only way they can identify themselves to the audience on a whole, aside from the first 100 feet of audience members, is to put up video that's descriptive, you know, that gives them an identity. So I need to make sure that those surfaces are big enough for them to display their artwork. So when it comes to video, that's one of the primary focuses of what we're trying to get done. Um, And then there's the creative element, but I try to add the creative element of video as a secondary function of design. The primary function of design for me is to put forth video screens that you can read a big image. Now, there are some stages, like if we go back to the other part of the conversation with the more subculture style music. Like if we were to do, be doing like drum and bass or trap or something a little deeper and darker, we could probably do more quote unquote creative elements where you're not necessarily gonna get the big screen and we can deconstruct it into smaller pieces of geometry and shapes throughout the stage and then do just like creative video. But on the bigger stages, you're gonna see bigger screens because that's how these artists identify themselves.
0: So they're responsible for providing a lot of that content.
1: Uh, most of them, especially the, the successful ones that are out on tour, they travel with their production team. So they'll travel with an LD, they'll travel with a VJ. And these guys are coming through because, you know, especially like in the third world countries and, and through a lot of the, these other festivals, the festival LD is, doesn't necessarily care or know what's happening and these guys are at least at least it's guaranteed that it's going to be somewhat coordinated that video and lighting looks will get matched and i've always found that it's it's a better show when it's when it's two guys anyway because it's you kind of have that whole dynamic relationship between the operators when they're you know from the music to the video to the lighting when you're jamming i've always felt that that's that just is a, is a more exciting show to me and when you bring the guys with you and they they know the music and they know the video obviously the, uh, the artists they pay to have produced, you want the lighting to match that. And when you bring your own lighting guy, you're guaranteed because he's on your payroll to do what you tell him to do. Whereas some lighting guys, you go, you know what? I'll do what I want to do. But if you're on the payroll, you're going to do what you're told. You're going to be doing what you pay to do. So they do travel with their own people. a lot of the A lot of the more successful ones do.
0: So uh, you also design nightclubs. I also design nightclubs. I want to hear about
1: that. Nightclubs are my first love. And I've been very fortunate and blessed to have uh, to been involved to date. I mean, we have designed over 200 of them, I, and I love it. But one of my favorite things about designing nightclubs is that where when we design a show, now, we might use $10 million worth of equipment on a stage in a show, but the, the second that show's over, these guys can't rip this gear out fast enough, and it's gone. Whereas when you design and build a nightclub, you hope that they're going to have some sort of success, and... It leaves more of a legacy, so you know that your design is in there to stay, at least for a couple of years, right? You know, a typical nightclub is going to last four or five years at least as that brand, before that they, they have to close the doors for a minute and at least repaint the place. But it's nice. At the same time, it's a more immersive environment. And it's immer- you know, people you kind of throw that word around a lot. But whereas a show, a stage is a very front-loaded, front-heavy environment in a nightclub. It's over your head. It's in front of you. It's on the walls. It's under the mezzanine. You know, it's it's all of these things. So, and you're in it more, you know, and it's a more controlled environment. You know, a blackout is a true blackout. Whereas at a live show on an outdoor festival, a blackout is as black as the room can get, which could be street lights on over here. The VIP area is still lit. You know, there's 50,000 kids in the audience with their cell phones on. So it's not truly black. And a nightclub, I turn the lights off in a club. It's black. It's out. So you have that environment as well. The other thing is, you know, going back to a more generic broad stroke of what we've been talking about is all of this stuff, this electronic dance music phenomenon, culture, whatever you want to call it. It's always been, at least for me in my perspective, it's been uh, a laboratory for experimentation and trying new things. So again, like I said, at the very beginning, I've always felt like, I didn't need to follow the traditional rules of lighting design that you would see on a stage. I can make up my own rules as I go, just what felt appropriate. And you're allotted that latitude and that opportunity in these environments because it's nearly ninety percent pure creative and ten percent practical. What are some of
0: the challenges uh, with respect to nightclub design, and more specifically, getting the project from the drawing board all the way in all the way into completion?
1: Well. There is less tolerance for mistakes when you're doing an installation and your documentation needs to be tight. For instance, we are we're working on a big project in a casino right now, which is in the middle of being it's under construction. Now, aside from having product uh, that's still on its way from China, I've got three pallets full of equipment, you know, probably to the tune of about 200 grand worth of gear stuck in a warehouse in Newark that was supposed to be shipped three days ago. So it's supposed to be on site three days ago. Won't be there till Monday. And I've got electricians that have been standing around waiting for that. So who's responsible? Who, who's responsible financially for the, for the electricians that are waiting there? You know, I had another job where on my documentation, it said that circuit A1, for instance, was supposed to be 120 volt. And then when the product showed up, it was actually mislabeled. And it was a 120 volt product, but it was labeled 220 volt. So the guys in the field made a decision, said, hey, we need to change the circuit to 220 volt. And they did. Well, I got billed $2,500 to change one circuit from 120 to 220, right? So there's a lot more exposure and liability when you're doing an installation. You know, you can impact a job, loss of revenue, design errors, things like that. I recall uh, doing a job for Steve Wynn's company and being in a meeting with all the higher ups of the organization, including Steve Wynn, and and Steve got very annoyed because one of the things that was not calculated into the remodel of this particular venue was the three months of loss of revenue on top of the construction costs so it wasn't just say five million dollars in construction it was we're going to be closed for three months and this club generates 20 million dollars a year you know that's four and a half million dollars worth of loss of revenue so this is really a 10 million dollar job not a five million million dollar job guys and i remember him you know, that kind of stuck in my head when he said that there was like probably 12 or 15 of us in this meeting. I mean, that really stuck with me that day. I was like, wow, I go, you know, when you do remodel a property, and if this property is successful and you're trying to give it a facelift, something that could you know, possibly carry it for the next three to five years. Do you need to shut it down to get it done? And if you shut it down, that number needs to be calculated in. And like I said before, if you make a mistake in a document, if you need to make a change, what's that impact going to be? Like I said, I had a fixture that was labeled 220 when it was really a 120 fixture. Now, fortunately, it was voltage sensing. So the need to change it was irrelevant. But the guys in the field made a decision to change one circuit at the Venetian where I did a club there uh, called uh, The Act. I got backcharged $2,500 from the contractor because that's what the electrician charged the contractor, and I had to eat that cost because ultimately it was my responsibility on my documents. Now, as a designer, we have insurance for errors and omissions, but you know it wasn't worth filing a claim for that. But there's serious financial and fiscal impact if you make a document error on a design, whereas in a production, you know, if I missed a couple circuits, well, you know. Just, you know, roll up another distro and pull out another multi-cable and plug a breakout into it and plug the lights in and, let, and let's call it a day.
0: So what kind of documentation is expected from you with, with respect to getting one of these designs in and completed?
1: Based on backgrounds of, of AutoCAD plans, we provide ceiling plans, floor plans, sections, elevations, details, shop drawings. You know, so for instance, you know, we have one club that's that's under construction right now in Southern California. The document set 60 pages long of D-sized drawings. And that includes dimensioned out details and all those drawings that I had already said. Then it includes low voltage drawings, which include all the data. And then it includes line voltage drawings, which circuit everything. Uh, It includes control risers, which show a complete detailed rack and where every cable plugs into. And then any individual shop drawings that, that we need for clarification in the field. On top of that, we've also got a fixture schedule. So every fixture on the plot There's a whole book that references every fixture with every cut sheet and any bit of information that you need. So let's say fixture type A1, you need to look that up and you need to know some specifics about A1. Not only is it in a spreadsheet, it's also in a fixture schedule where you can pull it up and see exactly what A1 might be.
0: So this is an interesting combination of production and architectural lighting design, at least on the documentation side.
1: Absolutely. And your documentation is everything. Because if you think about it, if you're just sending a, a document set into the field, who's responsible for installing that? Now, we don't install. Typically, the electrical contractor installs. Now, most electrical contractors are not theatrical lighting guys. They're electrical contractors. They're electricians. They know how to put lights up, but they don't know necessarily how to put moving lights up. You know, So you have to give them the direction and understanding of how it goes. And if you don't detail it clearly that these fixtures have to hang in this orientation, you're going to go – I've gone to jobs where I've had 40 moving lights that they've hung forwards, backwards, left and right in every – and I've literally had to change 70 percent of them just to match them up so that the programming is not a nightmare. So there's all these little details that you need to pick up in understanding what it is. You know, we also – prep every piece of equipment the same we prep a production. Every light comes through our shop. It gets addressed. It gets tested against the show file. It gets labeled and tested bench focus and then put back in the box. So you reference a plot, it'll say unit one. And then you look at the pallet full of lights that came. You look for the fixture. That's got the label one on it. You make sure you hang it in the right place because we prep this whole show to go up so that we don't have to go and touch every lamp in the ceiling, you know, because that could be another three days. You know, think in a nightclub, you know, in a, in a production, we have a lift, we can drive out, we can climb up or you have riggers. they climb, you know, in a nightclub, once they build the banquettes and the dance floors in getting around and servicing things on the ceiling becomes very difficult. And there's a lot of nightclubs where some areas are nearly impossible to get to without spending five and a half hours building a scaffold platform just so you can get up to service one area. So it's not where oh you know there's a catwalk up there or a lift up there or you can get a ladder forty feet in the air that that opportunity does not present itself so you need to be very careful and precise about how you display this information and how you deliver this information into the field.
0: So what have you learned doing large EDM events that smaller operators should know?
1: Well, uh, again, everything comes down to it's the same philosophies; it's just scale. Right, and you know the the best advice I can say, and if you're a programmer, this will make more sense. Um, I remember like one of the first times that I had to handle multiple hundreds of fixtures, and I was like, whoa, I've never I've never programmed 500 lights before. And my buddy was like, listen, dude, he goes, just stay organized. It's programming 500 lights is the same as programming five lights. It's just more of them, but it's just more of the same. So just stay organized. So the same philosophy applies. Whether you're doing a small event or you're doing a large event, keep it tight. Keep your organization clear and concise. You know, keep your information clear and concise. Just make sure everything is done procedurally with a protocol. And if you follow those protocols and you follow procedures that you've put in place, you can scale what you're doing. So if you have a shaky foundation and you try to take it to a large scale, well, it's gonna topple. But if you have a strong foundation, whether you're doing six lights or 600 lights, you should be able to still build. So just stay organized, stay in line, keep it straight, Keep everything where it needs to be. Don't let it get loose. The second you start letting things get out of control, it just kind of – it becomes exponential. It's a snowball effect. And and that that philosophy has worked for me my whole life because, I mean, these shows weren't this big when I started. But I've always been you know kind of neurotic about how I get things done and and how I put out my documentation and and how things need to be organized. And that whole procedure – I've just taken through and I've just scaled it in order to handle bigger shows. So the procedure hasn't changed. Just the level of work and responsibility has.
0: So what's the current roll call of uh, clubs and festivals where people can see your work? And-
1: well, on Sunday, we travel to South Africa. We have uh, – next weekend, we have Friday and Saturday in Johannesburg and Saturday, Sunday in Cape Town. And then uh, I come home for two weeks and then we head to Miami and then we have ultra music festival in Miami, Florida. Right after that, uh, we designed the human stage at Coachella in, uh, in the Coachella Valley in California. Uh, Soon after that, we have EDC, New York,
0: which, which I'm assuming doesn't take place in New York.
1: No, it's actually at uh, MetLife Stadium in New Jersey. Always. Uh, we we <laughs> did it at Citi Field a couple times, but no, they seem to keep taking it back to Giant Stadium. Then uh, after that, we go to Korea for Ultra, and then after that, the, the very next week, we do EDC Las Vegas. So that takes us, for the that covers the next uh, three and a half months. Uh, Nightclub-wise, if you're in Las Vegas... We have been fortunate enough to design a lot of properties there from Excess to Marquee to Tau to Life to Dray's. Um, we are currently working on a new club in Atlantic City at the Borgata Hotel and Casino. We just put a new system into Playhouse in, in Hollywood, California, uh, and we're redesigning Sutra in Costa Mesa, California and uh, we recently see, just contracted to design two new properties in Chicago. So we're, we're busy. We're, we're very happy. We're grateful for the work um, to be able to express ourselves as designers and artists. And uh, it's, it's a busy year. So knock on wood. Hopefully it'll stay that way. Keep the boys working. And, uh, yeah, come see us at front of house.
0: All right. Any final thoughts?
1: I would say, you know, for me as a designer, as an artist, as – a businessman, you know, I'm always trying to improve. I'm always trying to find things that I don't know how to do and try to learn how to do them. And it's just about advancing advancing yourself, personal achievements, long-term goals. Like that would be my advice for people who want to come up in the business. Nothing good happens quickly and nobody's going to hand you anything. If you want something good, If you want to learn something, you have to put forth the effort and you have to do it. Nothing's going to happen in two hours, in two weeks, in two months. You know, if you want something bad enough, go out and do it and work hard and focus. You know, I recently, uh, you know, I had a a lifelong goal of, of getting my pilot's license and it took me seven plus months to reach that goal. But eventually I did. And it was a lot of work and it was really hard to do. And uh, especially amongst all my uh, all my travel and my other work and just adding that into, you know, one more thing that I wanted for my own personal well-being and like mental health. And I I needed I needed something like that. And it was a fantastic experience and it was a lot of hard work. But again, it was it it feels so much better when you work hard for something and you can attain a long term goal. You know, if you want to really advance your career for me college education is everything. Now, I don't have a degree in lighting design. I have a degree in history, political science, and philosophy. Now, really, that, that's the degree that says I have no idea what I want to do for my life, but I'm going to college anyway. But for me, if somebody applies for a job with me, does having a degree in lighting design benefit you? Of course it does. But having a degree by itself benefits because what I see is someone who went to school for four years or more and finished and made it to that long-term goal. This is not again not a three-month process. It's it's something that you need to set goals and you need to take steps to make those achievements. And that's going to be everything through your career and through your life. So for me, like giving people advice on how to do it, it that would be it. Like focus and understand that nothing's going to happen quickly, and just keep working towards it, and just always constantly improve, and understand that it's an endless journey. But that shouldn't be discouraging. That should be encouraging so that you know life is never going to be boring. Just keep fighting forward and keep moving forward and keep progressing. All right. So, what's the website? sjlighting.net. Um, I'd like to say uh, it's completely up to date, but that would be a lie. However, uh, we've been uh, you know, I was anti social media for the longest time and about a year ago we finally uh, we bit the bullet and embraced it. So, now, you know, we also we have Instagram and Facebook and that kind of stuff and you know instagram is kind of my social media vice of choice just because i like the pictures but so we probably stay more up to date on that stuff but you can definitely find us on the web at sjlighting.net and the bugs for all those social media outlets are there as well and we do our best to uh to post pictures and inspirational thoughts and and things and uh, again it's like it's we really try hard to give back as much as we can to this community as much as it supported us we try to embrace it and give back you know we speak and uh we have hosted the live design masters class at LDI for the for the past couple of years and we don't think any of this stuff is a secret we want to see more people get into the trade and really love it and move forward in it so we're always looking to help and endorse and provide so we're we're grateful to be a part of it and always happy to help somebody who's truly interested and has a passion for it the same way we do in order to to get involved and move their career forward. All right, Steve. Thank you so much. Jason, it was my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. And uh, thank you to all the people who requested to hear from me. And, and I hope you guys got something out of it because it was a real honor to be a part of it. All right. Thank you, sir. You have a good evening. All right. You too. Thanks, Jason.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of the Casting Light Podcast. Visit us on the web at castinglightpodcast.com. You can use the contact form there to let us know what you think, and you can find all of our previous episodes there. We're also on Facebook at Casting Light Podcast, and on Twitter at Podcasting Light. Our theme music is Color Me Dead by The Lame Drivers. You can learn more about them at lamedrivers.com. The Casting Light Podcast is a production of Casting Light Incorporated. I'm your host, Jason Merritt. Thanks for downloading and have a good show.